But we've got a special guest with us today, uh, that is Jack Smith. Now, once a year, we uh, have this preaching series that is on uh, the mission of the church, what we're all about here. And we take uh, kind of a, a little break in the middle of that series to uh, be able to interview and speak with um, one of our mission partners. And uh, Jack represents a, one of our mission partners, meaning that when you uh, give money to the church in the offering plate, um, a, a significant portion of that goes to various mission partners throughout the world to further God's kingdom and to multiply the ministry in, in other areas as well. So Jack uh, is, is uh, coming to us uh, uh, from a, a, a organization that has a mission in the Congo, okay? So, Jack, if you would, come on up, and um, we uh, will uh, begin our little interview here, okay? And I get to be the interviewer, with Jack as the interviewee. Uh, first of all, first and foremost, tell us the correct pronunciation of this ministry. I've heard it pronounced both ways, Laban and Leban. Yeah, you can, you can okay. see it either way. Um, it was named after my grandfather, Laban, and so uh, many folks will just say uh, Laban Ministries. It was uh, um, my grandfather who, who first went out uh, to Africa, so it's named after him. Okay, and uh, tell us uh, more about that, that ministry. How did it get started? How did you get involved? Um, back in the 30s, my, my grandfather was an oral surgeon. He graduated from U of M, and he uh, had a couple practices in Gross Point, um, very successful. Um, and his first wife, unfortunately, um, in his 30s, passed away from a brain tumor. And um, he was not a believer at the time, didn't know Jesus Christ. And uh, so obviously going through that dark time really kind of put him on a quest to find out if there was something more to life. You know, he... He had a lot of professional success and, and everything, but he really found that, that life was empty, and um, he didn't really have a lot of answers for the pain he was going through. So he started to go to some churches, and he, and he happened upon a little chapel and um, found Christ there and realized of his need to, uh, uh, to give his life to Jesus, and so he did that, and he found his wife there as well. Um, the kind of guy he was, he, he, he was very much a go-getter, um, so four years after he became a believer in 1934, he and my grandmother were on a boat to Africa. That's how quick the transformation had happened. Um, and so he, what he had experienced in finding Jesus, he wanted everybody to know. And, you know, being an oral surgeon after he became a, 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 a believer, he would oftentimes use the dental chair as an opportunity to witness because they really didn't have a choice whether or not they wanted to hear. <laughs> and so... He's very passionate about the Lord and very excited. Um, you know, there's a funny story about how they kind of got going. You know, they realized, and my grandpa just kept bugging my grandma, you know, you gotta, you know, we gotta go. God's calling us, God's calling us. And she'd been a believer a long time, and she was like, ah, you're just excited. You're a new believer. You, you know, I understand it's special, but you just gotta, you know, chill out, just relax a little bit, you know? And finally, he just, he just kept at it and wouldn't stop. <laughs> so. He's, he, you know, he kind of just coerces, not coerced, but talks her into finally filling out the application, this mission board. And so she reluctantly does so, goes to the post office, and the story goes that she's about to, you know, drop the, the letter in, and you're expecting her to utter this really godly spiritual prayer, and, and uh, she actually ends up saying, you know, Lord, I've done my part. I've surrendered to my husband's desires to go. 
Now you do your part, make sure this letter gets lost and never makes it to the mission board. <laughs> so she was very much just an everyday person who, who had fears and concerns. And, and um, so he went out in 1938 and just God blessed you know, their, their ministry that they had. I served there for 15 years and, and he had the privilege of, of leading and baptizing over 10,000 people to Christ. I mean, God really used him in a mighty way. And so um, he passed away in 53. My grandmother continued the ministry up until about 1978. Um, my, my parents really felt God was tugging at their heart. And so they went, went over in 1978. My father was born out there. And um, when, uh, when, when they arrived, uh, my dad really set out to start a Bible school. That was really my grandfather's vision and passion, was to um, train up local nationals who could go back and be pastors of their own village churches. Uh, the missionary couldn't be everywhere. And so he never got to see that happen, but that's immediately what my father started doing. And since 1978, we've graduated over um, 700 students, and there's 400 pastoring local churches. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's just been an incredible thing to watch. There's a women's literacy center that um, basically trains women how to read using the scriptures. There's a radio station, I think you just saw a picture of it, where they broadcast the gospel and, and Christian living and to, to untold number of people. There's evangelism teams that are, that are continuing to go out throughout the year um, in evangelism uh, with other uh, villages that may not have heard. And so there's just a lot going on, but the main focus is really to train up national leaders to where they can uh, kind of run with the gospel and, and be empowered to do that. And then this past year, I, I really felt God tugging at my, at my heart, wasn't sure what it was about, and um, it just didn't go away. I was a music pastor at a church in the, in the area, and um, just really sensed like God was trying to get my attention, I wasn't sure what it was about, and my wife and I just fasted and prayed and, and asked God to show us what he was stirring us up about, and um, we really started to sense that God was wanting me to um, play more of a role in helping my parents. Three weeks after we made that decision, um, my father got diagnosed with leukemia. And so the timing of everything and how God worked out mm. all those details has been pretty incredible to watch. Um, I'm still very much in transition, you know, figuring out what we're, uh, what we're doing. And I'm going to share a little bit about our recent trip. But that's kind of the big picture of how it all started. And, and uh, it's, it's quite, a, quite a privilege to be a part of that, um, mm. whatever small role my wife and I might play. It's, it's real special. Amen. Uh, tell us a little bit more about um, you know what what the Congo was like when your grandparents first went there, and uh, you know com compare that with what it's like today, and how missions there really has has transitioned over the years. Yeah, uh, the golden era of missions, like the late 1800s, and my my grandfather had that same zeal and passion to go out, and just had a such an incredible burden for people to find what he found in Jesus. And so he went out there and, and, um, in the 30s, and when, when he arrived, they were still practicing cannibalism. Many rural tribes were still um, uh, having that practice. One of the things that most disturbed him and, and, and was, was very kind of shocking to them was uh, the practice that they still had in the 30s of child sacrifice. Um, if a woman had in the village had, had twins, um, had given birth to twins, it was, it was not... Um, an uncommon thing, it wasn't, you know, it happened all the time, but it was not an uncommon thing for the woman to be asked to offer up one of those children to appease the evil spirits. And so they would, they would offer the child on, on um, coals 
and and my you know my grandma and grandmother grandfather and grandmother would recount the story of the, the the screams that would come from these children that were sacrificed and he just prayed and prayed and was like man you know how do I convey the message of the gospel and do it in a way where it'll really hit home you know that was his prayer at the time and meanwhile these sacrifices are going on and uh, finally he realized well, I'm going to tell him about the sacrifice and so he would go to him and he after he learned the language he would say listen you know, there's, there's a God who's given his son that will atone for all the wrong you've ever done. For all the guilt you're carrying, for all the, all the stuff you've done that you feel horrible about inside and all the, all the things you're fearful of. God, God's taken care of that in his son, Jesus. And he's laid his life down as a sacrifice that, you, that it is once and for all. You don't have to do it anymore. And in that light, when, they, when the mothers found out that their children didn't need to be sacrificed anymore. You can imagine the burden lifted because it's not like they wanted to do that. They just felt compelled like they should. And so that immediately opened the door to people receiving the gospel and receiving it as what it means, the good news, that the way they were living didn't have to stay that way anymore. And they were just absolutely ecstatic. And um, life's, lives just began, began to become more and more transformed. You know, throughout the 80 years we've been there, we've seen Congo become more and more, um, uh, you know, a very culturally Christian in some areas, in the more urban areas. It's a very hostile and corrupt place, but at the same time, people go to church and they do this. And they, you know, a lot of that is occurring over there, but people aren't necessarily, the church isn't very, very, very deep in terms of its development. And so that's really what we feel burdened about now. Um, missions has changed. The way we do missions has changed. The you know, uh, the, the country is very difficult to operate in, and it's necessitated us to really change our strategy from, from being on site all the time to really raising up leaders that are Congolese. Uh, when you and I, if you and I were to go over there, when they see our skin, they see dollar signs. And so there is an incredible um, amount of corruption, and resources that could be used for the ministry will oftentimes uh, be used uh, to, to, to um, you know, the government will try to bribe you and force you to pay taxes. And there's a ministry that, that operates there that does incredible work, but they paid last year over $100,000 in, in um, just paying off people to go away because the government just comes in and, like a mob, it just shakes you down. So it's created this very difficult dilemma where we would love to be um, more present, but you, you almost feel like you're being a poor steward. And so how do you juggle that? And the, I think the answer is, is in building up the national leadership to where they take ownership of the ministry more and more. That's really what, what we're um, very focused on now uh, is handing it off to them and empowering them to do it. And Africa, I think it's fairly well known, has really faced a, an AIDS epidemic um, and what, what have you seen in, in the Congo? Is that uh, something that you've seen there? Are there other issues? And how do you partner with the Congolese themselves to resolve the problems? Yeah, we, um, you know, we looked into doing a clinic a little while back. And when we were doing the research, we found out that the, the, the cause of fatalities, you know, we were expecting AIDS to be pretty high. And what we were, uh, the research was telling us was that AIDS accounted for about 1% of why people were dying. Um, the vast majority, I mean... Almost 50% of all fatalities in Africa have to do with waterborne or water-related disease. So you're talking about like malaria, 
typhoid, upper respiratory infection, um, you know, dehydration, diarrhea. I mean, just those are basic things that we just kind of, we don't know what it's like to suffer from those things as much. Um, over there, that's what wipes them out. Um, and we were really shocked by that. So what we realized is that the clinic, while it was a good intention, wasn't going to necessarily deal with the root cause of their sickness. We'd rather prevent the disease from happening than trying to deal with it afterward. And so um, we, we really have a, a burden to see um, the water change. You know, that's really where they need to, if they can get clean water, then their, their livelihoods can really transform. 50% um, of all people that die of malaria are kids five and under. So parents and families go into their you know, development and, and having children with the mindset that they'll probably lose two to three kids at least um, due to malaria. I mean, that's just like, that's just the norm. Um, so it's, it's, that's a burden. Um, what makes it complicated is if you just go over there and build a well, and you spend $20,000 and you build this great well, um, and they don't have a piece of it, they don't pay into it and feel like they have ownership of it, uh, they tend to not care about it. And if they don't know how to maintain it, then in six months you're back to zero. If the thing breaks, they don't know how to fix it. And so as Americans, we, you know, we kind of look at like fixing problems as always being money-related. But these are deeper issues. They're systemic. And um, so it creates some challenges in terms of knowing, okay, how can we use the resources that God entrusts to us in a way that doesn't just create dependency, but actually empowers them to take ownership and uh, really transform their, their uh, families and, and communities from the inside out. All right. Um, you know, here in, in Canton, Plymouth area, um, sometimes, and it can seem as though we've got our really a lot of problems just close to home. And people are uh, investing in their families and just got to pay the bills and, and uh, you know, keep their kids out of trouble at school and things like that. And the Congo, frankly, seems like the ends of the earth. So why should we care about people in the Congo? Well, it's very easy to be, I would say, you know, bogged down with the here and now and the material things we see and touch. I mean, I, I, I fall into that trap all the time. Um, but as believers, we know that we're not living for this life. You know, that the life that's coming is the life that we're to be um, constantly focused on. C.S. Lewis used to say, uh, he said, you know, if you aim for heaven with your life, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim for earth, you'll get neither. In other words, that you live this world on this earth with the mindset in your heart and your mind that there's a day coming where this is not going to be around and I want to live for the kingdom of God in the future. And, um, and furthermore, I think it comes down to a, a basic reality that if you and I have experienced the favor and the grace of, of God through Jesus Christ, um, and, and these folks are so hungry to hear it, you know, it's just so compelling to, to take the gospel over to them. And they don't look at it like Americans do at times, or Westerners. It's not old news to them. They're starving for it. When you tell them that their sins can be forgiven, when you tell them that Jesus has made a way to get rid of all their guilt, they run to that message. It's still a message of hope there. And so experiencing that yourself and, and knowing that there's a day coming where we'll all be in heaven together, um, that compels us. That's a very powerful image that we want to uh, make sure we're prioritizing in terms of why we care, you know, about, about people. And it, I would say even, even here in America, you know, they say that every person 
in the States, every believer knows at least eight to nine people that are, that are not saved. They don't know Jesus. And so if we have a tough time having a heart for the neighbors around us, it's going to be real difficult to have a heart for people mm. that we'll never see and, 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 and touch. And so I think it really just starts with our own heart. You know, do we have mm-hmm. the heart and, and desire to, to, to care for the things that God cares for? Amen. Uh, you know, it, with, with my own experience in uh, short-term missions, I've seen that uh, the people that are, are ministered to really have things to teach th- those who are, are going there uh, that we can bring back and, and, and can really infect our, our own communities and, and, and change our own lives and churches. So what can the Congolese teach us? The Congolese can teach us about um, the, re- the truth that what you have externally in material wealth has no bearing on your spiritual wealth. That the, 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 the spiritual life that you and I have is not found in making sure our life is comfortable. Um, it won't be found in, in making sure my circumstances go the way I want. I get that promotion or I get that, you know, my kids go into that good college or they get into that good career. Or, those are all fine things. But at the end of the day, they, they do nothing to spark spiritual, spiritual growth in your life. That all happens with the inward man. That all happens on the inside. When you see a Congolese out there who has nothing that you have, I mean, they live in a mud hut, they, you know, the average salary, household income in Congo is $422 a year. That's how much they average in income. And, you, and I'm not saying that to make them feel guilty. Nothing wrong with wealth. But, but when that becomes what we're sustained by, what we depend on, what we rely on, instead of Jesus Christ, our lives become empty. And when you go over there and you see that they have none of those things, but their eyes and their spirit are full of joy and passion for God, it is thrilling to see and extremely humbling to see because I don't see that in my life all the time. You know, I very much associate my circumstantial comfort, you know, what's happening in my life externally with my relationship with God. And that's just, uh, it, it's not one and the same. And so that's always something that's very sobering, and it, and it helps me um, in terms of understanding that those are two very different things, that, that Jesus Christ can, um, oftentimes, there's just so much noise in our culture that's calling out to us. It's hard for his voice to break through that and to touch our hearts. And, and there, you lack some of those distractions, and you can see that they are relying daily on, on the grace of God. And um, so that, that's probably one of the biggest things I was impacted by. Amen. Uh, you know, we, as I mentioned earlier, we uh, have the privilege of being able to partner with you and support you um, uh, as a congregation. But how about personally? How can people uh, get involved personally um, and, and support you? I think the biggest thing we're looking to do is, um, you know, if, if we can see the church be empowered. This is our vision for the church in Congo, that they would become self-governed, that they would be self-supported, meaning they're not dependent on Western money, um, and that they would be self-propagating, that they would be the ones taking the gospel out. If we can see that church rise up in Congo, um, that's what we feel most burdened about. That's what we think will be the most uh, fruitful efforts in our ministry. And so the biggest thing we ask for is for prayer, because the dilemmas and the challenges that lie ahead 
they're way, they're way above my pay grade. I mean, I, 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 am, um, I definitely feel called and compelled, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't enable us to, to see that through, then we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hit a wall. And so we're asking people, our vision is to have thousands of people praying for the work in Africa every day, asking God, you know, humbly to, to give us insight into how to build up the church of Jesus in Africa. That would just be, that's our heart's desire. Um, in the 90s, there were 5,000 missionaries in Congo. Today, my parents, we've been told, are one of 100. And so missions has totally fallen off because in the 90s there was civil war and the missionaries had to go and they didn't come back. They went to other more friendly places. Um, and so there's very few of us still present in Congo. And I'm not discouraged by that. I think it just shows that God is very serious about us raising up Congolese and that they become the leaders of our mm -hmm. ministry. That it's not mm -hmm. dependent on, on white Westerners anymore. And we've had 80, 80 years there and um, it's been an incredible work, but it is time for them to be empowered to the point to where they bear the burden of, of their faith because we might not be allowed in the country next year. Um, our people have told us they have elections next year. They said, do not come back. You know, they're expecting some, some outbreaks of violence. So when you're doing missions, you have to do it in, in, with an effort of and now with a strategy of saying, I have to operate as though I could not be allowed back into the country or I could be, you know, evacuated. Uh -huh. And there lies the need of us raising up leaders that are Congolese, who speak the language, know the culture better than you and I could ever learn it. Uh, even though I was born there, I'm still just, I'm still this, I'm still white. And they need it in their own tongue, they need it with their own people, they need to see their own people um, see God work in their lives. The same Holy Spirit that's in us, that enables us to walk with God, will enable them to walk with God and to find, um, find help and, and resources. So that's our biggest prayer, how we can raise up national leaders to take on the ministry. And, and just last question, we're going to pray for you in just a moment. What can we pray for? There's three men in particular that I would love to <clears throat> ask you to pray for. Um, their names are Boma, uh, Kilasi, and Isaac. You don't have to remember their names, obviously. Just those three guys in Africa, if you can remember that. Pray for those men. They're the ones that we feel God is equipping to, to really help us develop a more um, uh, indigenous work to where these guys can raise up the future uh, leadership of the ministry. That would be um, a, an incredible blessing. God, protect them. Keep them humble. That they'd be hungry for the Lord. That, that God would preserve them. That would be uh, our, one of our biggest prayers we'd ask you to pray about. Amen.